Open your Bible to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20. And they lived happily ever after. Wouldn't that be great? But sometimes it doesn't happen that way, does it? If you remember, David has defeated his son, Absalom. And now he's moving back to Jerusalem to reassume his kingship there. And uh, you don't need much to, to really understand what's going on beyond what finishes the last verse of chapter 19. And the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. <laughs> there you go. Let's fight about it. Uh, David has been removed from his place of kingship. He's gone down across uh, the uh, Jordan River, uh, outside of the nation of Israel, but he's had allies and friends that have now uh, helped him defeat Absalom, and, and now these same allies and friends have come together and helped move him back. But it's not going to be ever after. It's going to be something way short of that as the consequences of David's actions with Bathsheba just keep unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. One horrible mistake with a huge price tag. And, uh, and this chapter just unfolds it all the more. I, I, I love the way this chapter starts. This, this is quite the story here. Here it is. Now there happened to be a worthless man. <laughs> How many of you have some worthless men in your lives? I'm, I'm just hoping my wife doesn't raise her hand right now. There happened to be a worthless man who, whose name was Sheba. A Benjamite. He blew his trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. Now, this is really fascinating what happens here. Because when David first was going to come back to Jerusalem, the men of Israel were all on board, and the men of Judah were hesitant. And then, after the men of Israel were all on board, the men of Judah said, well, wait a minute, he's, he's related to us. And so the men of Judah became involved and whatever else, and they got to argue with the men of Israel. And now that David is there, the men of Israel, they say, we don't like David that much after all. Have you ever tried to win a public opinion poll? <laughs> this, is, this, is like, this is like David here. Wow. I read an article this week, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not much of a news buff, uh, not, not, not like uh, other people I know that really follow the news, but, but I read this article, and this, this entire art article was an argument about, about Trump, Trump's numbers of popularity. Trump is claiming that he has 51% popularity, where the polls show he's barely at 48. Hey, let me just be honest with you, 48, 51, 
You know, there's really not a lot of difference. Half the people don't like this guy as the president. It's, it's kind of crazy. But the article went on and on and on arguing this. Now, you might say, well, what are you doing piling on Trump? Well, you can go back to about any president you want to over the last 20, 30 years, and if they're at 60%, they're incredibly popular. I don't know about you, but uh, if, if only 60%, you know, that's, that's scary. But that's the way democracy works. And, it, and it's that way politically here back in David's time. And here's this guy. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the, sons of Jesse, in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent. Well, so the men of Israel deserted David. And, and, and he's got left the, uh, the, uh, the sons of Judah. And the men of Israel that go, that go with uh, this... Uh, this uh, Sheba, they, they, they're, they're uh, no longer loyal to David. And so David comes to his house. And, and what do you got to do? You got to go and you got to do something about Sheba and you got to do something now. Because otherwise, Sheba's going to create a problem even bigger than the problem you had at Absalom. But David shows up to his house and you know what's wrong? He's got 10 concubines there. that have been publicly humiliated. By Absalom. And so before David can do anything about Sheba, he's got to do something about these, these, these ten women that he left in charge of his home that have been publicly humiliated by Absalom and he, and he has to show care for them. And it, the, the Bible tells us he sets a guard over them. He, 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 he issues special orders of protection uh, against them. Uh, hey, don't let the paparazzi expose them anymore. And, and yet it, it goes on to state that, that David doesn't uh, have any kind of uh, relations with them. Because uh, that would be in violation of the law. And so, so David uh, carefully uh, takes consideration and acts toward them on their behalf. So even though there's this public thing going on with Sheba, David has to take care of his own house. I don't know about you guys, but I, I've had this problem every now and then that, 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 that my job got in the way of my home. That probably never happens with any of you, that your job gets in the way of your home and you're, you're trying to go out to work and somebody else says, hey, wait a minute, before you go, can you do this? I'm busy. How does that work for you? It's a great line, isn't it? There's something about family that just trumps everything else. There's something about your home that just trumps everything else. And so, so, so David has to act on his own family and, and he, uh, he, he comes to this Amasis, 
and he says, organize the men, assemble the men of, of Judah, and within three days and get a strike force together to go after Sheba. And then David concentrates back on his family. And, and so while Amasis is organizing the forces to go. Remember, Amasis is David's cousin. And, and in the previous chapter, David has put Amasis in charge of his military and he's demoted Joab. And, and Amasis was the guy that was the general for Absalom's army. And so David has a strategy in place that he's going to use Amasis and as Amasis pulls this off and, and chases down Sheba it will consolidate his, uh, his, his forces and it'll give uh, Amasis an, uh, a great uh, 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 feather in his cap of achievement in that he was able to squell this, this, this revolt but Amasis doesn't do his job The three days goes by, and Amasa still isn't organized. And David now has his, his household in order, and, and yet and, uh, uh, Amasa is, 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 is failing to do the, the simple task of getting organized to track this Sheba down before uh, Sheba gets his forces organized. And so David comes to Abishai and speaks to him. He says, Now Sheba, the son of the cry will, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him. Unless he gets himself into the fortified cities and escapes us. This, this simple job is getting away from us. And so now we, we, we need to, we need to uh, get after this. Now, from this point forward in the chapter, there's a whole series of cities and such and things that are mentioned. And, and, and you can get yourself confused reading about all these cities. But if you were uh, from the nation of Israel back at this time, all these cities and such would make sense. And so uh, uh, Amas, uh, uh, excuse me, not Amasis, but uh, Abishai, uh, organizes his, his, his troops. And we're told about the organization of his troops, and we're told that he takes the men of Beniah. Now, Beniah was the guy that was over the, the, uh, the uh, protection of David. He had a, a small army of people that their job, they were like, uh, they were like uh, the, uh, the, the people, that, the secret service that protect our president. He, had, he was over the personal bodyguard of the king. And so this, this small strike force of, uh, of soldiers uh, made up primarily of David's mighty men. In other words, they were not untrained. They were the very highest trained soldiers of David. They were, they were his elite force. And, and Abishai is put in charge of them to track down uh, uh, Sheba. Now, I don't, I don't know if you can see all of this map. These words are so big uh, here. Uh, Phil, can you read this one right here? This is, says Jerusalem, Okay. Okay, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what the lines are. This is Mahanim, Mahanim. This is where David was during the rebellion of Absalom. Now he's come back on this orange line, crossed over here at, Jer- at Jericho to Gilgal. And this is where he's reorganized. He's come down to Jerusalem. And now uh, this green line is going to take us on the rest of our trip that's going to go in this ch- chapter as we move on. Just outside of uh, Jerusalem, a matter of just a, a couple of three miles, is Gibeon. That's this town right here. 
as you can tell, the green line goes all the way up there. They're just barely outside of the city of Jerusalem, a matter of two or three miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they have their forces, and they're on their way to to, uh, track down Sheba. And guess who they run into? Amasis. Oh, hey, boys. Uh, uh, David told me to get organized. And uh, they have all their soldiers. They're all organized. They're getting ready to go out. And now here Amasis is. And and his expectation is is that he's going to leave the strike force when when he dropped the ball and, and didn't get the job done. Now, but note... Who did David put in charge? Did he put Joab in charge? No. He put Joab's brother in charge, Abishai. One of the premier mighty men. The, the, the big three. <laughs> He's one of them. And, uh, and so they come, and, and, here's Amas- and, and Joab goes up to talk to Amasis. And Joab has a, has a, a special attachment for his sword, where his sword, when he leans forward into battle, will, will come out to where he can quickly engage it. And he comes over to Amasa and he goes, Oh, my brother! And he takes him by the beard. Now, I could come over, I could find somebody here that has a beard, I could grab them by the beard. And you can, you can kind of control someone if you have them by their hair. <laughs> and, and, and he goes to kiss him, a formal greeting. But while he's doing that, he, he sneaks his dagger out, stabs Amasis one time, and Amasis dies. Now, I want to be really clear about this. This is gory. The Bible explains exactly what it's like. He stabs him in such a way and twists the sword that his intestines fall out of his stomach onto the sidewalk. Isn't that cool? Do you you like those kind of movies? Those blood and gut movies? I'm a chick flick guy. I'm sorry. I just don't like these kind of movies. You know, I get a hangnail and I just about pass out. Uh, So, you know... I, I'm just not, I'm not this blood and guts kind of guy, you know, and such. And I, you know, the, those video games and such, I, I, I'm not, uh, that, that's just not me. That's not my stuff. But, you know, and I understand some other people, you know, but not me, not me. I, uh, uh, they, they, they had me in the room when my wife was giving birth to children. And, and Charlene looked at me between contractions and said, please leave, Brian. <laughs> the doctors need to help me. They can't be getting you up off the floor. You laugh, but that happened. <laughs> Give it to all you. No. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, here he is, and, and, and he's here, and he's dying. But Sheba is down the road, and they need to chase after Sheba. So one of Joab's loyal followers stands over the body of Amas and says, there's nothing here to be seen. Move on, move on, move on. And, and finally, uh, he takes uh, uh, the body of uh, Amasis, drags him off into the field opposite, and, and throws his cloak over him. And everybody follows on. Now, 
Do you see this? That's the Sea of Galilee. They're chasing after Sheba. They finally catch up with him at the northernmost edge of the nation of Israel. Sheba runs into the city, close the doors. And uh, and they begin to build a wall. Now, in the ancient cities, they figured out you want to make the doors uh, very unique to a city. When they first made the doors, they made them narrow. And then after a, a, a hundred years or so, they realized, hey, let's do something better. Let's make them uphill. And you would go up into the city. Notice how many of the Psalms talk about going up in Jerusalem. They would make the gates going uphill. That way the attacking armies would have to come up into the gate. Then they actually made the gates where they were cornered. So the army would have to go in and turn a corner to come on in. All of this was designed to make the entrance into the city difficult for the opposing armies. The opposing armies realize this, and so what they do, they build a siege wall to level the playing field, (laughs) to level the place at the gate so that they could attack directly and not have to go uphill to fight. And so Joab looks it over, uh, uh, investigates the situation, says, what we need to do is build a, a wall here. And they start to build a wall, and they start to hammer the walls of the city. And a lady comes up and speaks out and says, is one of you guys Joab? Notice, David put Abisha head in charge, but everybody in the town where Sheba's at knows Joab is in charge. What are you guys, Joab? We're, we're, we're a peaceable city. In fact, we've always been known as being a peaceable city. We're a mother city. We're a compassionate city. Uh, what are you doing here? And Joab says, hey, there's just one guy that's a problem, the Sheba guy. And she says, let me go uh, do some talking. And they went and did some talking. And you know how they say, you know, when the king decides, heads roll. Well, there's a head that rolled, all right. Head of Sheba. They put it in a bag and they threw it back out. And the battle's over. And so they retreat and they leave the city and things go on. Isn't that a great story? A lot of encouragement there. There's a, there's a lot of things there that, that, that just warm your soul, make you feel better about life, don't you? A massless land at the side of the road in a bloody mess. The headless Sheba. And by the way, David is back in Jerusalem, not even on this adventure, because the ten concubines are there that he's organizing care for them because they've been publicly humiliated and violated. Wow, what a great story. The story finishes up with this uh, statement here uh, that's the last couple of verses 
uh, verses 23, uh, 24, 25, and 26. And it, it's a listing of David's cabinet. Joab is in command of the army. By the way, I, we are never told where David directly told Joab that he'd been demoted, and we're never told where David directly told Joab he was back in charge. Joab just kind of does what he does because that's who he is. He's in charge of the army. Benaiah, uh, he is going to be the commander of the Cherizites and the Pelethites. I think that's how you say their names. They are Gentile soldiers. They are mercenaries that fight for David's army. He's in charge of that part, and he's also in charge of the personal bodyguard of the king. Uh, He is going to become Solomon's lead general. As you, if you go on to the story. Then at Urim, he's over the forced labor. Now, just to give you an idea, that's a quarter of a million people that are in forced labor. The servants or the slaves of David. This guy is over the workforce. In fact, he's going to be the guy over the workforce for Solomon that builds the entire temple and the palace and all of that stuff. A, a work project that takes 20 plus years altogether to accomplish and becomes part of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He's over this workforce of a quarter of a million people. Then Jehoshaphat, uh, he is the recorder. By the way, uh, uh, one of the kids in Sunday school today, I went and asked what, what his name was. This kid said, I'm Jehoshaphat. And I, I sit there and thought to myself, how does he know that Jehoshaphat is in the Bible reading today? But, uh, and I don't even know how the kid knew the name to say it. He must be a preacher's kid. Uh, anyhow, but uh, he, he claimed to be Jehoshaphat. Shiva was the secretary. And so this book that we're looking at, Samuel, probably was written by Shiva, we're not sure exactly who the author is of the book of Samuel, but it's likely Shiva. Zadok and Abathar were the priests, and Ira was David's personal priest. What's interesting is this is the second listing of David's cabinet, and in the previous listing, everything's the same except one line. I'll show you the line. This line. The last one. In the previous reading... From earlier in King David's reign, it says, And David's sons serves as priests. Well, several of them have died, and several others have become invalidated by their actions. And this is a sad commentary on what David's sin with Bathsheba cost him. It costs him the holiness of his own sons. Meanwhile, in a ditch just outside of Jerusalem, Amasa lays in a bloody mess covered up by a blanket. Get him out of the way. He's, he's holding back progress. We're trying to track down Sheba, a threat to the, to the kingdom. 
And, and this bloody mess of a mess is in the way because people can't go on because this mess is here and, and, it, and it distracts us. Cover it up with a blanket. Push it off the road. Get on with your life. Can I ask you a question? What mess in your world have you covered up with a blanket so that you can just get on living? You don't want anybody to know about it. You don't even want to think about it yourself. Because it's a distraction. It's a horror. It's ugly. It hurts whenever you think about it. It grieves your soul. And you think to yourself, if I could have just never had that happen, my life would be so much better. By the way, where was God when that happened? Is, is, is God still in control when things go chaos in your world? You know the answer to that, don't you? Yeah, he is. But we don't like to talk about that. In fact, when, when you got dressed to come to church today, did you open up your closet and say, what will I look the absolute worst in? Because that's what I want to wear today. I want to wear something that people look at me and they'll think, there goes stupid. <laughs> now, I'm not going to ask this question of the guys because I kind of, you know, guys are kind of like me. They're kind of... There's a few guys here that are pretty sharp. But for the most part, but I'll ask the women this. Did you put any thought into what you were going to wear today? <laughs> and the women would go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I put some thought into this. How many dresses did you try on this morning, Shirley? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Get myself in big trouble. Think about this verse. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrow, familiar with pain. People hid their faces from him, he was despised. In the King James, it says it this way. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And, and, and in the context of being this man of suffering, familiar with pain, it says people hid their faces from him. We don't want to identify with losers. I used to be a Royals fan. And now they're losing. <laughs> I'm a Jayhawk basketball fan. Someone said they had a football team. I didn't know about it. But seriously, if you're going to know Jesus, how he wants you to know him, 
you're going to have to be acquainted with his grief. You can't know Jesus apart from the cross. This is what it means to know Jesus. And, and we often say it this way because this is more palatable. Yes, he went to the cross and he defeated sin, death, and the grave. And he did. But when he was on the cross, it didn't look like he was winning. In fact, the whole world thought he had lost. Come down from there! You healed others! But this is what it means to know Jesus. How does Paul say it in the book of Philippians? He says, to identify with him in his sufferings. To realize that, that it, it is there, it is there that he makes a way for me. Charlene had me listen to a message this week. I, I love the way she introduced it to me. She said, Brian, 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 I've got a really good sermon I heard this week. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> I fully expected it to be on Samuel, but no. In this message, this man said something profound. He said, marking Jesus for all eternity in heaven will be his wounds. We will always know Jesus through what he suffered for us. He was marked on that cross. We learn a lot through suffering, don't we? We learn a lot through grief. But a lot of us, we don't want to think about the low points of our life from where Jesus met us. We, we don't want to think about the places where, where, where we had to go through incredible difficulty and Jesus met us there. The, author, uh, the preacher that we were listening to uh, read an author that, uh, that wrote a book after his son died in an accident in his 20s. And the author of the book where his son had died of an accident, he died of a mountain climbing accident in his 20s. The, the author of that book said, you cannot know me apart from my son's accident because it's, be, it's defined who I have become. The struggle I went through with God that he would allow my son to die in his prime shaped me into who I am for God today. Uh, the cross shapes us. Because through the cross of Christ, we find, we, find, we find our pain is met by Jesus. Our pain isn't met by a God that says, it'll get better. Our pain isn't met by a God that says, oh, this is all for good. Our pain is met by a God who identifies with our pain in his own son dying. 
He suffered for us. He suffered with us. Now, uh, Paul describes it this way in the book of Corinthians. In the book of Corinthians, Paul says, for godly grief produces repentance. This, uh, repentance is a change of my, of my, of my thoughts. Uh, now, we think of repentance as a change of our actions, but actually repentance, more often, it's a change of our thoughts that results in a change of our actions. It says here, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, uh, a guy by the name of Judas betrayed Christ, and when he tried to deal with it, he went and committed suicide. That's how Judas dealt with his grief. I've done a horrible thing. I've betrayed innocent blood. I'll kill myself. That's what worldly grief does. But godly grief produces repentance. As I cycle through the, the horrors of my life, through the reality of a cross where Jesus suffers with me, it produces repentance. Now, now, now it, it produces a change. It, this isn't an instantaneous, oh, well, yeah. That's why we do communion every month because we're constantly being worked through this process of realizing what, 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 it, what, it, what it means that God would die for us so that we can deal with the challenges of our life. So, so what does godly grief look like? Well, we could discuss it the rest of the day, but why not just ask Paul? So in the very next verse, verse 11, Paul says it this way. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourself. What, what indignation. What fear. See, he's, he's going through the processes of grief through the cross of Christ. This is what the cross of Christ does. As I work through my pain, my suffering, it, it brings about an earnestness. It, it brings about an eagerness. There's something in this. There's something in this that I have gone through that Jesus enables me to understand. What indignation. Why? What fear. How could a holy God allow this to happen? What, what, is, what longing. Oh, Lord, I... I Deliver me from this. I want to walk through. What zeal? What punishment? At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in this manner. There is a process of the cross working through our souls, healing. I'd just rather just drag a mass out of the way, throw a blanket over it, and go on. That's my way of dealing with it. I'm not going to talk about what I went through. I'm just going to cover it up. Jesus died for it. Cover it up and go on. No. God wants you to work through it. But, but how, did, how, did the, how did the writer of Isaiah say it again? We hid, as it were, our faces from him. That's why we do this every month. 
because there's a tendency to forget the reality of what the cross means toward change in my heart. And I, and I stop going to the cross and I start just living up to people's expectations instead of processing it through the cross. What is this that I've had? What, what is this that's happened to me? How can I see it through the cross? Can I invite you to instead of hiding your face from him, to look at Jesus in your pain. The elders are going to come and we are going to celebrate this that Jesus instituted on the night in which he was betrayed, the night in which he was trialed and condemned that, that would say, it, it says this message, I am willing the bread. I am willing. He offered his life. I am willing. I am able the cup. I am able to make the payment. Jesus identifies with you in all of your pain and suffering. He would say this to you right now. I am willing to enter into your suffering and into your pain and I am able to help you through it. This we do in remembrance. Don't ever forget, Jesus wants to help you, and he can. And he can. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today to recognize again that you are able to help us through our pain you are able to help us through our suffering. You are able to meet the deep, deep cry of our hearts. You are able to heal us. You have forgiven all our trespasses and sins. Through your blood, in your sacrifice, on our behalf, we pause right now just to remember that and then to apply it in our own hearts where we are hurting right now. Help us. Help us through Jesus. Help us. Amen.